You're listening to Third Factor, a podcast celebrating the life of the mind and supporting all of you out there on the search for the higher path in life. I'm your host, Jesse Manistow, and today my guest is Julian Adorni, a journalist focusing on affective polarization. It seems to me that Julian's path from a reactionary libertarianism to a more measured, less emotionally reactive form has all the hallmarks of the process of positive disintegration. He's worked to sort out his personal values, as well as to really understand the shared ones that have made the United States the fortunate country that it is. So what do threats to those values look like on the surface? And might that distract us from what's really at their root? Why is it worth our time to go learn some philosophy? And how does loneliness play into all of this? We explore all this and more on Third Factor. Julian Adorni, welcome to Third Factor. Thanks for having me. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah. um, So I'm a writer with the Foundation for Economic Education. Um, It's a libertarian kind of think tank out of Georgia. And my main real focus is on preserving our liberal social contract. So I try to identify existential threats to the West, essentially. And I really want to make sure we still have a functioning uh, republic in 50 years. Not that I can by any means do that alone, but that's kind of my North Star in terms of what I write about and think about. What do you feel like the threats are that you're seeing that make you want to defend this? Yeah, so I see kind of three three existential threats. The first is right-wing illiberalism, degradation of the rule of law, you know, trying to censor political opponents um, or create Christian nationalism. Obviously, Trump trying to stage a coup in on January 6th. All the things that dramatically threaten to undermine the electoral freedoms we mostly take for granted. The second big threat I see that I write a lot more about because I come from being a, a liberal background uh, psychologically is left-wing illiberalism. So their focus on threats to free speech, attempts to outlaw so-called hate speech or misinformation. I focus a fair amount on some of the on DEI and critical race theory. My vision for society is very cosmopolitan. People of all different cultures and backgrounds at this use come together and sort of mingle and share ideas, you know, connect as, as humans. And I see some of the kind of race essentialism embedded in certain CRT thinkers as harmful to that, to that vision. And then the, th- the third big danger I see, which is actually how you and I met, is affective polarization. Essentially, regular polarization is you and I disagree and, you know, I'm, I'm a libertarian, you're a communist, whatever, but we have a civil conversation. Affective polarization is we disagree and you're a bad person. You know, I have a certain level of anger and fear towards you because of that disagreement. And I think when affective polarization kind of takes over a country, it can make problem solving really difficult. It can make it very hard for us to do anything in this country because we're always at each other's throats. And so I see that as a sort of existential danger to our republic because, if you hate and fear the other side enough, as soon as you're in power, you're going to try and change the rules to lock them out of power. And that's how republics die. Our listeners are going to say, ah, that is why Jesse invited Julian on Third Factor, because <laughs> you just shared one of our core values. I'm trying yeah. to cultivate a space supporting that very same goal where we can have intellectual disagreements without what you're calling affective polarization. So that's a really useful term. I see you using it a lot in your work. You know, you're really, yeah. you know, trying to educate the public on this topic. 
Um, I'll give you a little bit of information. Again, the listeners will probably already know about this. Uh, we talk about this this framework a lot of something called overexcitability, which mm-hmm. is in the theory of positive disintegration. It's seen as having the capacity for the capacity to help you develop, but very often in practice, you know, emotions that can be excited by things like fear that I can see contributing to affective polarization. So first of all, when you hear about that, do you see that as relevant to this discussion? Just this basic thing I told you about people being overexcitable, whether in the intellect or the emotions, like, does that seem relevant? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really interesting idea. I never thought of it really that way because I don't necessarily have the psychological background, but yeah, I could, I could definitely see that. It makes a lot of sense that that would sort of drive some of the extremes on, on either end where people seem to respond to critics or viewpoints that disagree with, with very high levels of emotion. And it, it is the emotion that tends to cause people to double down the, I should say the negative emotions, the lower forms yeah. of this, fear, anger, fear, I think is the biggest one. It's, it activates that fight or flight system and you see other people as a threat. Whereas the ideal you're going for is more an excitable intellect, but grounded mm. in some core values, you know, core yeah. values that, that that do have an emotional base to them, which is a lot of what we try to do at Third Factor is figure out why we value what we value and what the emotions are behind them. So why do you value what you value? When did your values, you mentioned you come from a liberal background. When did these yeah. values that you've described, these sort of uh, enlightenment values become clear to you that they were yours? Yeah, it's a really good question. The primary turning point for the Enlightenment values was when I lived overseas in Kenya for a year. Um, I was with my fiance there, and it was an absolutely incredible country. I made so many incredible friends there. It was a really one lovely place. I would love to go back. I'd love to live there again. But I also noticed that they were struggling with a lot of problems that in the West, we sort of take for granted that we don't have to deal with these problems anymore. Things like, you know, roads that mostly worked. You know, where where my fiance lived, the roads looked like, you know, Baghdad in 2003, there were six foot craters blown out of them, you know, because they were just dirt roads. Or, you know, there's a lot of, a fair amount of kind of street violence there. There's a lot of, when, when election season came around, in 2008, elections in Kenya were so bad and so violent that the, I believe the UN actually stepped in and said, you guys have to clean this up or we're going to, you know, try to take some steps and and step in ourselves. I may be misremembering that, but it was a very, it was a very violent election. Kenya sort of has the reputation as like, they're very much warring tribes in terms of their elections. And I did hear from a lot of people, including a lot of my friends, like, if so-and-so wins the election, we know it wasn't legitimate. You know, he's not, he's not a statesman. He's not a ruler or he's not a leader. He's just someone who's going to try and take our resources and give them to the other tribe. And then the other tribe would say the exact same thing. And I started thinking about what a miracle it is that we have elected democracy and that we have, by no means is every politician this way, but we do have occasional statesmen who really try to make the country and the world a better place. And we can generally trust, or we do generally trust, that an election is fair, that it's sound, that it's trustworthy. And that can be a really incredible thing that we really take for granted. So that was when I really started, when I saw what it looks like to live in a country where that's broken down. I started really wanting to save it in the U.S. Wow. 
having seen that in 2008 in Kenya, that's, I didn't, I didn't know that that had happened, but I can see that being a big motivating factor to trying to defend what brought us what we have in the United States and want to defend it. Cause we, we take it for granted, or at least we have until recently. To be clear, I wasn't in Kenya in 2008. I was in Kenya in 2021 and 22. Oh, gotcha. Um, but it was still like, it was still that level of tribalism. Um, it's just 2008 was when all the news stories were written. And so, so yeah, if you just want to learn more about that time, that's the election read up on. Right. Got it. You mentioned some, you know, good, good statesmen. Do you have any like exemplars of people who you really look up to in terms of personalities? I actually really like uh, Utah's governor, um, Spencer Cox. Um, he's a Republican. And this is one of those things. I don't really know his policies very much. I'm not, I don't live in Utah. It's never a thing I focused on. But he's, I see affective polarization, like I said, as an existential threat to our republic. And he's very much a leader on that front. He spoke at Brave Angels Convention. And, you know, I've, I've heard he burned, you know, burned, burned the roof down. I heard it was an amazing speech. And you know, he when Joe Biden visited his his state, Cox had some very strong words for people who he welcomed Joe Biden. And a lot of people were wondering, like, oh, you're Republican. Biden's a Democrat. Are you going to welcome him? And he said, this is an insane question to ask. Of course, I'm going to welcome him. And he actually said, like, I'm rooting for the president. He said that, you know, when the president does well, our country does well, you know, and so we we disagree a lot and we should disagree a lot. But I got the sense that he ultimately wants the country to succeed more than he wants to increase his own political fortunes or even his own party's fortunes. And I thought that was very admirable. I was fortunate enough to be in the room when Governor Cox gave mm-hmm. that keynote at Braver Angels. It was a remarkable speech. Yeah. And he did. He he dared to mention a controversial discussion point to that audience and you could have heard a pin drop when he was talking about these very sensitive issues and he he masterfully handled it and i was just like i tend not to vote republican i'm politically homeless now we can we we could discuss that if we if if we want to follow that tangent but i've always voted democrat in the past until recently been drifting third party myself pox on both their houses type but having said that Looking at Governor Cox and just the way he approached politics, his what is his program called? It's the Utah Way and something else beyond that, right? Well, he has the whole Disagree Better initiative. That's what it is. Disagree Better. Do you know what? Tell us about Disagree Better. You're familiar with that, right? Can you explain it to us? Um, a little bit. Um, okay. I remember he and Governor Polis did a cool video. Polis is Colorado's very, very Democratic governor. And they were talking about... In the context of thank, uh, Thanksgiving coming up, they said, you know, we all have that conservative uncle or that, you know, woke nephew. And the important thing is to see them as human beings and to, we, we can disagree on policy, we should disagree on policy, but let's never forget the human being underneath the political positions. And let's never forget that we're family first and partisans second, you know, or in a broader context, we're Americans first and Democrats or Republicans second. And so... I really admire uh, the Disagree Better initiative that I think they both launched, or I'm not sure if it was the brainchild of one or the other of them, but essentially talking about we need to just come together and sort of heal as a country and re-knit as a country. It's exactly what we need. And I love that there is a, a Democrat and a Republican on board with it. Whoever's idea it was, the other one signed on to it. So props uh, to them yeah. both, right? That's true. 
So, okay, you and I have chatted a little bit before, you know, about the enlightenment and trying to learn about philosophy. I understand that as a writer, you're doing something similar to what I'm doing and that this podcast is doing, which is trying to trace the origins of these ideas back. You know, when we went to disagree better, we've got to, there's, there's some level, especially as writers, right, who are trying to lead yeah. the discussion. We want to understand where we're coming from. So how, how are you approaching this as someone writing about these concepts? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, so I'm actually very fortunate. My future brother-in-law is a professional philosopher. And so he'll, he'll like push me on these ideas to like think deeper about this stuff and go, go a level or two below what can be sort of my surface level thoughts. That's a resource. And so, yeah, it's, he's incredible. Very, very smart man. And so one thing I'm trying to do is I have this sort of sense that certain things in the U.S. work really well. Uh, we embrace the scientific method when it comes to science, medicine, things like that. We have a culture, a robust culture of free speech. We have a robust culture of freedom of religion, you know. Um, we tend to see the human as an end in themselves rather than just a means to fulfill the state's ends, um, which is a, we don't realize this because we grew up in this culture. Although you, actually, I didn't realize this. You might, with your background in the CIA, be much more familiar with this. But this sense of humans as having intrinsic worth and being an end in themselves rather than just a means to the government's ends is such a historical anomaly. It's, it's incredible that we have this. And so the reason I wanted to do research on the Enlightenment is that I have these sort of inchoate ideas of like, this thing works really well, this thing works really well, this thing works really well. And I'm, I don't quite have the deeper philosophical background to tie them all together, understand where those ideas came from, and in a more scholastic sense, what they replaced. I can sort of talk about it as a layman, but I can't talk about it as a, you know, with, with the same depth that, you know, uh, my, my future brother-in-law or other professional philosophers do. And that's the depth that I want to bring to this discussion. Sure. But, you know, there's got to be someone out there on that popularizing edge, figuring out the ideas and yeah. bringing them to people, which is what we as writers, I think, are doing. But there's mm -hmm. just so many of these ideas that we take for granted. Like you said, the idea of humans as ends in themselves. I also yeah. am only just learning about this. I understand that comes from Immanuel Kant, right? Does that sound right to you? Yeah, it does. Yeah. It's like the categorical imperative or something like yeah. and here. Like we're both saying like we're not experts, but we're trying to figure out where do these ideas come from and how can we defend them? Because so many of them are now being threatened, which is very bizarre. You know, it's kind of like the the rug getting pulled out from under us. Like you mentioned, you know, when, when you were talking about racism earlier or, uh, you know, racist principles, and then you said like, this is the CRT crowd, the DEI crowd doing this, which if you're not really paying attention to it, you just, you we, we don't think it through very deeply. We just think, okay, these people yeah. are saying they're against racism. I better do what they're saying. Well, what does, what, what are we saying is racism, right? What, yeah. How do we really become good people? How do we really live up to our values? Who knew that it was more than a, you know, a, a, a shallow little layer? I mean, we should have yeah. done that, but we don't operate like that, right? So, yeah. I mean, tell us some of the things that you have written. And well, I should say our, our, to our listeners uh, who are members, they will already be familiar with one of your articles because we discussed one where you wrote for Quillette about how the norms of the academy are, you know, attacked by critical race theory. Can you tell us a little bit more about that argument? Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
So critical race to me, you know, it does have some very good ideas. I think Kimberly Crenshaw's initial point about intersectionality, the idea that, you know, if you're a black woman inside, you will face a level of discrimination that's not fully explained by you being either black or female sure. is a really interesting point. You know, it's really important to consider. And there are other interesting ideas they bring to the table. My concern with critical race theory, and I want to be clear that racism in the U.S. very much does exist. You know, we've heard this across the political spectrum from conservatives like David French to a lot of liberal commentators. Um, a lot of libertarians talk about this. This is not really in dispute a whole lot. Right. But when it comes to combating racism, CRT is not the only game in town, and it's one of the worst games in town. And I think the reason for that is that they do jettison those traditional tools of the academy. They do jettison. Carl, Karl Popper talked about the, the difference between science and pseudoscience is that science is falsifiable. And so you, you can take an assertion like, oh, the sun will rise tomorrow in the West. And then you can test it. You can look in the West and be like, there's not a sunrise. That was wrong. Um <laughs> Pseudoscience is what you get up, you get when an assertion is unfalsifiable. It can never be proven wrong. And a lot of CRT trades in these ideas. Um, for instance, Robin D'Angelo, probably the most prominent uh, CRT scholar in the world, she talks about if, if you're white, you're racist. And if you disagree that you're racist, it's more proof that you're racist. And it's like, well, that's an unfalsifiable idea because any criticism of the idea is taken as more evidence of the idea's merits. It's also a Kafka trap. It is, yeah. It. Yeah, you can't get yeah. out of this no matter what you do. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So, well, and and I appreciate the nuance you brought to this, saying, you know, they're, they're not all wrong. They're, yeah. There are problems. You know, Crenshaw's original ideas are something worth engaging with, which I think you are here modeling the type mm -hmm. of intellectual discourse that you're calling for. So that's well, what you. we're trying to do at Third Factor, too. But it's so yeah. hard. It's so hard yeah. to do because I'm finding not a lot of people really want to do that. And I think that does come back to the affect of polarization you're talking about. Yeah. So do you have any thoughts on how to address those emotions that are getting in the way or how those might be fueling some of these ideas? Because we're talking here about a tension between affect and intellect. Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a very thorny question. The best way that I've found is... I think affective polarization is typically downstream from broken psychology or flawed psychology or broken spirituality or flawed spirituality. And so I'll use myself as, as an example. I'm still pretty libertarian, but back in the day, you know, back in my early mid 20s, I was very libertarian. I was very affectively polarized. I was very much like, if you don't like, if, if you like the government, there is something wrong with you. you know, we need to talk, you know, and I had a lot of fear of the government and of proponents of it. And I had to do, and what brought me out of that, it was a very unpleasant place to live because being angry and scared of 95% of the populace or half the populace or any number of millions of strangers is a deeply unpleasant way to live. You know, I have a lot of sympathy for people who are dealing with this because I was one of them. And for me, the way out was, kind of deep spiritual work where I sort of unearthed the emotional root of why I was so mad at government, which was that I dealt with a fair amount of abuse when I was younger. And so I'm fairly used to feeling powerless in the face of relatively monstrous authority figures. And I transplanted that abuse onto the government in a, in a very emotional way of like, no one is going to control me ever again, sort of like a small child way. 
I don't mean that as a moral criticism. That was just the psychology undergirding it. And once I sort of started doing the deep work to explore that, then I could recognize like, okay, you know, say we will about the government, but Joe Biden or Donald Trump or whatever are like, they're different humans from the person who abused me. So it's not really fair to like pin the, the second sense on the first, you know? And then I could start to, once I decouple those things, I could start to see them with a more rational perspective. And I could start to see, okay, you know, you might like government and that's okay. We can disagree, but you're an okay person uh, because I'd done that deep work. I think another component is a lot of times we identify ourselves with our politics. So back in the day, I would be like, Julian and Dorney, libertarian, nice to meet you. Like that was my identity. And in that set, in that state, whenever anyone said anything that contradicted libertarianism or that disagreed with me, I would sort of fall into the same kind of fight or flight mechanism that you would if, if a punch was thrown at you, because it was like, this is who I am and who I am is being threatened. And again, so I had to do the kind of deeper psychological and spiritual work. Um, and by no means is it, you know, like a done process. Like I'm not like sitting here like I'm at Cartoli or something. It's just that like I've I'm farther along the path than I was at 27. But I had to do the kind of deeper spiritual work to realize that my identity is as a human being and a child of God. Or if you don't like the term God, a child of, you know, spirit or the earth or whatever it is, um, source, whatever you want to call it. And that's who I am in all that infinite complexity as a human being. Being libertarian is just a very small part of that. And so now I can receive criticism of libertarianism without misinterpreting them as criticisms of me as a person. That's a really striking trajectory. And I know many of our listeners and members will really relate to that. I hadn't known that you had that kind of upbringing. I'm, I'm sorry to hear you went through that. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, it's, it's yeah. okay. <laughs> well, I mean, and I didn't know, right? This is news yeah, yeah. to me. You know, I, I I know you, so I brought you on the podcast, but that is such yeah. a, a really relatable story to many of our listeners. Yeah. And okay, so what strikes me is that, you know, you're still a libertarian, though your views have, have evolved somewhat, right? Is that a fair yeah. conversation? Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that you had a more like a lower form of this that was rooted in reaction to having been controlled, like, you know, a visceral reaction to coercion. Yeah. And now what you have are you, you've sorted out what was the emotional response to, or I don't even want to say emotional. Cause again, there's a higher emotional response too, yeah. but that lower shadow, dare I say shadow. Um, yeah. And then, but you had, you found good principles, like your bad experiences that were causing negative emotional responses still led mm -hmm. you to find some good principles that you're defending. Mm -hmm. At I least mean, I think they're good principles, you know? Sure. Well, and, but here, that's, that's the thing, right? Like, I think uh, that everybody who is being intellectually serious would, yeah. would consider the sort of principles you're talking about as at least worthy of consideration. They yes. have an intellectual basis. How how did that, I mean, you may not have an answer to this. This isn't something I had you prepare ahead of time. So, you know, see if, if, if you do, but what was the process of sorting those things out? Like, you know, figuring out, oh, I'm going to keep this belief. This is intellectually grounded versus this comes from that fight or flight. It's a really good question. Um, one of the interesting mechanisms my, my mentor is very good at poking me and so his, his way to induce me into deeper spiritual growth is to is to poke me and then 
if I, you know, figure out the places where I react. And so one of the interesting tools that I used to go deeper on this path was if, if, if I can feel an idea and hold it loosely, then it's probably not coming from a, a shadow or a lobe or a childlike place, you know? Um, for instance, if, if, if someone says to me, I like vanilla ice cream, it's like, and I, whereas I prefer chocolate, it's like, okay, well, that's okay. You do you, you know, and maybe I'll try your vanilla ice cream and like, maybe I'll prefer, you know, chocolate because I don't have a strong emotional attachment to chocolate. Whereas when someone would poke me and I would respond with like a death grip, you know, it's like, no, I, I must cling to this belief. You know, it's like, I used to be very big into not voting because my thought was like, don't encourage the bastards, you know, um, <laughs> sure. which, which now I think is a little silly. And so when my mentor would poke me, I'm like, okay, if you don't vote, like who's going to vote, it would trigger this sort of emotional reaction in me. Um, not necessarily verbalized, but this strong, like feel of fight or flight in my brain. And that was a cue to me. That sort of death grip was a cue to me of like, I need to take a deeper look at this, like this resistance that I'm feeling to an intellectual idea if I hold it with a death grip, like I, I, I need to take a look at that and see if maybe there's some sort of egoic attachment or emotional attachment or some sort of past trauma that's like manifesting here that's making me grip it so tightly. Because I think the truly enlightened person, and again, I make no claims to be this way, but just the like, just, just from the models who I follow, you know, the truly enlightened person should be able to, to hear ideas, even ideas that very strongly disagree with them and be like, okay, well, that's worth considering. Let, let's go down that road. Let, let's see, you know, let's talk it out. And so when we respond instead with like fight or flight, it's like, okay, that, that's worth looking at. You know, that, that's worth digging into in our own psychology. Yeah, absolutely. We talk about that a lot with our members. And I, yeah. th I mean, that's the root of affective polarization. So I love that you're offering that up. And I also noticed that you did something that people on this path do often, which is, you know, you're talking about what this enlightened figure looks like. And then we always people do who like I've done this too. people on this podcast have done this. Like, I'm not I'm not talking about me. What you're talking <laughs> about is a personality ideal. And we yeah. all are so aware of how we're not living up to it. Right. We, we mm -hmm. all know we're never going to totally get there, but we hold this ideal. You know, we know what the ideal we're aiming at is. And you also talked yeah. about a mentor who I'm assuming sort of helped you form that you have this respect for this person, you know, embodies maybe more of it and you're aiming for that. Is that fair to say? Um, yes, my mentor is definitely further along the path. Than so I look at him with a lot of admiration, a lot of respect. This is the man who saved my life in a lot of ways and helped me more importantly, just save my life, helped me like build my life into something that's worth live that I genuinely want to live instead of the fear and terror that I dealt with, you know, as a result of, some of my, you know, experience in my past. Um, he also, he's, I actually learned this style of communication from him because he'll be very clear of like, I'm not enlightened. Don't assume I'm enlightened. If you want like, all I can do is point you towards that ideal. It's sort of like a platonic ideal. It's not something that I think as humans, we can reach. And it's definitely not something we should beat ourselves up for not reaching, but it should be our North Star. Yeah. You, you mentioned then the idea of the North Star, something that we're aiming at. So what is it about your mentor that, you know, led you to take this person as a mentor? How did you cultivate respect, trust, right? I'm assuming trust matters a lot. Yeah. Trust has to be one. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes. Um, 
this is going a little farther afield from my area of expertise. Um, That's okay. It's, it's your personal and, story. And so, yeah, yeah. So don't, don't take this as like the word of God or something, but <laughs> two things really helped me with him. One is that I did deal with a lot of like, so I, I dealt with like abuse in my past, you know, when I was younger. Then I, my family suffers from genetic depression. And so I was dealing with suicidal ideation for many years in my 20s, um, culminating with a period of where I was active on suicide watch. Um, like in my in my kind of mid-20s and i was like i don't know what's going on but my brain like i'm losing this war against this mental illness you know and i ended up kind of like breaking down and crying to a mentor of like we're, we're due to meet every two weeks and i was like i need your help or i won't be here in two weeks because like I'm, I'm losing my ability to control like this illness is like winning the war against me and i need help and i before that my point in all this is that before i met him i found a therapist who was i mean she was at the top of her field she clearly graduated from a good university. I mean, she had credentials, you know, but she kept telling me, I'm sure she, maybe she was helpful to other patients, you know, but she kept telling me like in so many words, like, yeah, you're screwed. Jeez. Yeah. Like not, not in a mean way. She wasn't vindictive, but it was just like, I would go into her office feeling weak and fragile and come out feeling weaker and more fragile because she would do this endless kind of validating, coddling, empathizing thing that I really didn't need. What my mentor showed me is that what he basically told me, and this was the theme of a conversation that happened over five years. It wasn't like, hey, this is day one. Here, here's a message. But his theme was, I can help you become, I can't like stop the demons in your psyche. I can make you strong enough that they don't bother you anymore. When I met him, they were like dragons roaring around my psyche, burning everything to ash, you know, clawing things, whatever. And what I learned working with him is like, I can become mentally strong enough that they turn into like mosquitoes where now occasionally I'll still feel like some sort of memory of abuse or whatever. And it's like, oh, that's annoying. Go away. Like they don't, they don't bother me. They don't phase me. And once I learned that he could help me with that, I just went kind of all in. Thank you for sharing that story. That's a really striking story. I didn't I didn't know you had dealt with that. So I, I appreciate oh. you being willing to share it with the audience. And I know I am certain again that some of our listeners will that's going to help people. Yeah. It, and what was something that comes to my mind is just that, you know, I'm not a therapist. I'm not trained to do this stuff, but we talk about these sorts of things at third factor, this idea of positive disintegration sorting out values. I didn't know when we started this conversation, how much your story was a, an example of that. I just knew yeah. you had cool ideas that I <laughs> wanted to talk to you about, but the role of finding the right people and not necessarily through therapy. I know we have yeah. a lot of, we have therapists who are members and who I'm friends with, and I so respect what they're doing. There's a place for that, but, mm -hmm. but we rely on it too much. What we need to find are connections and people who who are yeah. our friends on our peer level and also mentors who can give us a hand and help us up. That's just essential. And it is, you know, I, I, I just really am impressed with the story that you shared as, as an example of that. So thank, thank you. you again. Mm -hmm. Um, So, wow. Um, You know, I work alone you know, I have a supportive partner as well. So yeah. we are already married. I know you have a fiance who is, who yeah. is, is, you know, very supportive of what you're doing too. 
but to be this in this idea space, it can be, do you, do you agree with me when I say like, it can be kind of isolating? Do you work at home? That kind of thing? Definitely. Yeah, it definitely can be isolating. Um, and yeah, yeah I, I work from home. I, I love it because I'm how I'm wired, but I realize that like, it isn't the same as going into the office every day, you know? Yeah. Well, and this is where I toss out that thing that I was asking you about. And you're like, oh, I'm not an yeah. expert, but the idea <laughs> of external processing uh, I learned that term from you and you just happened to have heard it once, you know, and you toss it yeah. out and I got, I latched onto it saying, oh yeah, that's what I am. I want to process ideas with people, but not just in an intellectual way, right? Also yeah. there's emotions that go into it and dealing with struggles and just feeling like I'm surrounded by a community of people who, who share a certain amount of values. You know, that's another reason yeah. that, you know, people get, you know, affectively polarized. They're fighting over things that actually do matter and that sometimes can't be compromised on because we have to make decisions. So I don't want to like oversimplify that or make it seem like, oh, we just have to like get along. But there is yeah. a, but there is an element of that to it, right? We, we have to at least recognize the way that that plays into it. Um, I'm going off on a tangent. So coming back around to my point, it's simply the role of, finding the right people you did refer to you know uh, being um like a child of god or something are you are you a, a religious person uh yeah I'm, I'm christian okay i have and i've written about this for third factor i'm i'm an agnostic but not... in a in a good example of yeah you know not a, of, of being saved from going the wrong path i and i was yeah. like a disgruntled disaffected like <laughs> atheist leaning eighth grader when my mom makes me go yeah. to the confirmation class at the methodist church because she was raised in the methodist church my dad was yeah. like a richard dawkins god delusion reading guy oh, he was raised in a lutheran church that told him you know scared him with hellfire so just all way all these traditions land with people i was caught between them but mostly was put off by how the kids the other eighth graders just like they didn't care about Jesus. They were just there because yeah. they were made to be there. I'm like, this is dumb, right? This is stupid. Yeah. Nobody nobody cares about this. But I got sent to talk to the pastor, like all the 13-year-olds did, to talk about being confirmed. And I I could have, that could have been, you know, a disaster. Because I said, you know, I just, I'm not sure I want to be confirmed. This seems kind of dumb. And that yeah. pastor said to me, I didn't say that it seems kind of dumb, but he got, you know, he gets what yeah. a 13-year-old kid is thinking. It's like, I just, and I, what I did say to him was, I just am not sure that I believe. And I think that matters. I think that probably yeah. makes a difference. And he said yeah. to me, you are the only person in this class who is taking this seriously. Cause all the other eighth graders just go along with it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the weirdo. And he says, my door is That's open great. anytime you want to come and talk to me. Yeah. And you know, I, I wish you th the best on your journey. And he was, he was so kind to me. That in that moment, what I took away from it was, wait a minute, maybe this place isn't as dumb as I thought it was. <laughs> and so yeah. now I have like all these friends who are Christians and there's something in that, these communities that offer a sense of belonging and a, and a North Star, a guiding purpose. Yeah. And so I've been considering joining a church and I'm cool. working on a, a course right now on the on uh, St. Augustine and his ideas, because those are so important to even even atheists philosophy. Like that yeah. is where a lot of Western civilization came out of, like the existentialists. Apparently you can trace their ideas back to St. Augustine. Yeah, I just learned that. <laughs> Talk interesting about, talk about learning philosophy right like there's so yeah. much there when you get into it that is so rich and wonderful that's the privilege of of being a writer and getting to explore these things and then share them with people so 
Anyway, uh, the reason I'm rambling on about this is that it's very clear to me that faith communities fill a big role in giving us a space to belong and to have these intellectually, but emotionally, like that link is done very well in faith communities. And it's interesting that more of us who are that kind of, you know, cranky 13 year old who has grown up now are saying like, wait a minute, maybe I should give this another look. So I don't know. I, I just told you a story. I don't have a question for you, yeah. but have you, have you, have you seen that? Do you see people doing that? Yeah, it's a really good, I mean, I really appreciate your story. Like that's, that's really honest. Um, and yeah, I think two things come to mind. Like one is the church does a lot of damage. You know, you mentioned that your father grew up, was turned very Richard Dawkins atheist because of his grandparents or his parents. That That's very sad. It doesn't surprise me at all. I know a lot of people who describe themselves as like, I kid you not, the, the phrase is recovering Catholic because they were raised with such an intense, and I'm not trying to pick on the Catholic church here. That's just the, you know, they were raised with such an intense guilt complex that even at 50, 60, 70 years old, they still think like, man, I really suck, you know? And it's like, yeah. or people who are convinced that, you know, turn or burn, whatever, you know, um, convinced that if they don't do everything right, they'll go to hell. It's this incredibly, it, I think it's an utter distortion of the message of the gospel, but that's what we as humans do. You know, we, we, we distort and we build up institutions that try to legalize this stuff or turn it into laws and norms that are violated at your peril. I think the church does a lot of unintentional damage to people who, and turns a lot of people away. Like the church turns a lot of people towards God and a lot of people away from God. And it really depends what past you find, what church you find, stuff like that. Um, So I'm not at all surprised by your father's, journey towards atheism although i'm saddened for him not because atheism is bad but because i'm saddened for anyone who reaches their beliefs through reaction to pain rather than you know because i don't want them to feel that pain in the first place you know the bigger thing there was that yeah i do think churches provide a strong sense of community there's kind of the churches are supposed to feed and this is not unique to christian churches it's any religious institution they're supposed to feed the body and the soul the body through like human connection you know let's let's all join a small group let's all go bowling let's all talk about jesus let's all talk about you know the quran whatever that community you mentioned is so important and also once you when you really cultivate and feel a strong connection to the, to the divine whatever you want to call that whatever words you want to put on that my experience is that you become much less lonely um, because you're now connected to the source matter of the universe and that that matters a lot when you're talking about loneliness, I think, at least in my own experience. Yeah, we have at least one member who has already been on this podcast who, though she doesn't talk about it, I think, in her episode, as I recall. Um, yeah. She's a young person who's joining the Catholic Church in part because she's lonely, you know, and because she cares, yeah. she's looking for that beauty and that wonder. So we'll see. Maybe the, uh, the death of God has been uh, predicted a bit too soon, it seems. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, jumping away from religion to my the last thing I want to cover today, but it is still about belonging. Why did you join Brave Rangels? That's how we met. And mm-hmm. I think we we both really found that a great crowd. So what brought you there? Yeah, it was incredible. Um, I loved going to the, to the convention um, because there was a strong sense of belonging and a strong sense of like, 
we can disagree on policies, but like we're both human beings and we can talk about these, these hard conversations. Um, and I think that belonging is what a lot of people yearn for, not just like, oh, I have superficial friendships, but I have people in my life who I can open up with and talk about the hard conversations with, and maybe even like wipe up my mouth sometimes, and they're not going to, going to try to cancel me or defriend me or whatever. Like we're, we're messy humans doing this together. I think that's incredible. So yeah, really, I'm really glad we both came. I'm really glad I met you there. It was fantastic. Um, I found Brave Angels because after going through Kenya's elections in 2020, let's see, this is 23, 2022, I guess, I asked one of my friends, you know, hey, I want to work on the issue of affective polarization. I didn't know what it was called back then, but I, I wanted to work on the idea of like knitting our country back together. And he said look up Brave Angels. And so I did, I found Monica, um, I found her on Twitter, like that woman is like the nicest human being, being in existence. And even though she's incredibly well-known, I mean, she has her own TED Talk, she just moderated a panel of like 20 governors. Every question I asked her, she was never too busy. Like she just like always made time for a quick Twitter conversation with this dude that she had never met and that like brought nothing to the table as, as of that point. And so I started volunteering with Brave Angels, started writing more about effective polarization because I started reading her book and listening to her podcast, to her TED Talk, stuff like that. And I just sort of like fell in kind of with, kind of like talk, you, talk, you talked about earlier in this podcast, like I fell in with this tribe of people. I found the right people who were all working on the thing I cared about. And especially after the convention, it hit me of like, this is the group to join, you know, at least for me, this is the national movement. This is, you know, the... I wouldn't compare it to the civil rights movement in terms of importance because the civil rights movement was probably the most, one of the most important things the U.S. has ever done. But in terms of the scale and scope of the group, the disparate groups that Brave Angels trying to bring together, it hit me of like, this is a nationwide movement and I want to be much more involved. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it all started with just Monica being super nice on Twitter. <laughs> she is so nice. I I have my own yeah. story of meeting Monica Guzman at the convention. I came up, someone's like, oh, you got to go talk to her. She's amazing. And she is. And what she said to me, she's like, oh, you're the one who runs Third Factor. And I was blown oh, cool. away. She had heard of Third Factor and she recognized me as that. And I was just like, oh my God, when someone remembers you and knows your work, I, I'm yeah. bad at that, right? I'm, I want to be so that. Cool. That's a wonderful thing to be. And she she does it and, and she can yeah. do it. And it makes me want to get better. She's yeah. So uh yeah, her her book, um, I don't remember what it's called, but I should read I it. I never thought of it that way. I never thought of it that way. Her thing is curiosity. So of course I love yeah. that. Yeah, she's very cool. Yeah. I no, I'm I Braver Angels was great. Finding the right place. And for me, that 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 external processing idea where I could go and just talk ideas out with people. I share yeah. your view about January 6th. I was sitting here horrified watching it. You know, I'm not far from where that was actually happening. So oh, wow. yeah, yeah. I'm in Washington, D.C. So yeah, that was scary. And I, I'm upset that it happened. But I also met someone at Braver Angels who had been there that day and was talking about it from her perspective. Like she had, oh, wow. she had gone to the Capitol that day and she told me how she saw it. And that was just an amazing thing to hear, you know? Oh, oh, so she was one of the, like, she was one of the, not, I don't know, right. 
she was one of the protesters. She was one of the protesters. Um, That's so interesting. Yeah. But she also, she said, look, I, I condemn the violence. When I smelled tear gas, I was scared and I got out of there. But yeah. everyone assumes these things about me that are not true. I just wish they would understand why I was there and what I saw in it. Oh, that's so cool. It was one of the most the, like the most powerful takeaways from the convention. It didn't yeah. change my view intellectually about what happened, but it did change my emotional response to people who differ with me on that. Yeah. So last question for you is just, did you have a chance to go to any debates at the convention? Uh, yes. Um, I think I went to all, all the ones that I could. Um, I think I missed the Trump one, which I was sad about. But I went to the Biden one and... Um, at least a couple others, and that was incredible. Um, it was such a transformative experience to me. I remember being at the Biden one, and we I actually specify, changed my mind. It was huh? it was resolved reelect Joe Biden, and yes, people were giving speeches yeah. in the affirmative, negative, affirmative, negative, and no one wins. It's just people saying what they think, right? So sorry, sorry, yeah. I interrupted. Please, please go on. No, no, that that's really important context. So thank you for that. Yeah, and so yeah, we all got up, or not me, but like. Speakers got up and spoke, you know, four minutes for and then took questions. And then next speaker would be four minutes against and then took questions. And one of them actually changed my mind on Biden. Um, this like firebrand conservative stood up and he said he's written for Fox News. He has a syndicated conservative radio show. He helped elect Trump twice. He voted for Trump four times, primary 2016, uh, general 2016, primary 2020, general 2020. And he said he organized for Trump. He was like, you know, if, if you've heard some of those phone messages in the elections, like I, I wrote a lot of those. He was very big in the campaign. And he said, I I regret everything. I I actually, I'm still very conservative, but I like the job Biden's done. And that was utterly eye-opening to me. And it really made me rethink like, oh, you know, maybe Biden's done some really good stuff, some stuff I can agree with. And that that's an example of, I, another example that came to me was we we're talking about the Supreme Court, and I live on Twitter where the left has an unfortunate tendency to push to expand the Supreme Court. You know, Elizabeth Warren wants to expand the Supreme Court, you know, different senators do. Um, and I think that's an existential threat turning the Supreme Court into a political football. And this this liberal came up and he was very critical of the court. And I was bracing myself, like, ah, oh, here it comes. And then he said, but I think it needs to stay nine members. I don't like some of those members but we need to preserve the integrity of the court. And it was this eye-opening thing for me of like, oh, most Americans of any political stripe are way less extreme than we think they are when we kind of caricature them in our head or we only see the very loud, bombastic ones on Twitter or the news or whatever. But most people are way more in the middle than we think they are. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah, of course we hear from the ones who are in the extreme, yeah. especially on Twitter. So. Yeah. It's one of the problems, but it was cool to hear your response to that debate. I was also in the room for the, uh, for the Biden debate. And I remember that yeah, guy. I remember always, that. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I appreciate the work you're doing on affective polarization and I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss some more of your articles in our, yeah. uh, in our, in our, uh, members forum. So I'm really excited to have had you on the podcast before yeah, we thank go. You. Is there anything, um, where can our listeners find you if they want to see your work or follow you online? Yeah, so the main place is on Twitter. Um, that's where I post all my articles, and I'm pretty active. Um, the username is Julian Dorney, and, and the handle is Julian underscore Liberty. I am the only one in the world with, world with my name, but back in the day, I had a couple different accounts for like my old job and stuff like that. So Julian gotcha. underscore Liberty is the, is the handle. 
cool. Well, we'll make sure to link that in the show notes. So if people want to follow you, they will, yeah. uh, they'll be able to. Otherwise, cool. um, thank you so much, Julian. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Third Factor. Ixen of Tell Your Story composed our theme music. If you'd like to continue the conversation you heard here, we invite you to become a member. When you subscribe at or upgrade to our community member tier, you'll receive an invitation to our forum, where you can join in both written and live Zoom-based conversations. Just head to thirdfactor.org join to sign up. Even if you're not yet a member, you can check out our upcoming live Zoom sessions by going to our website, www.thirdfactor.org. There you can also find our show notes, loads of written articles, and sign up for our mailing list. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Third Factor Mag. And we're really grateful for any social media shares, which help us to find more kindred spirits. That's all for today. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again soon.